turn with me today to the book of Psalms, please? I want to draw our attention to the 57th chapter of Psalms. And I want to read the first three verses today of this chapter. Typically, I read to you on Sunday mornings from the New King James Version of the Bible. Today, I want to use the message translation, if that's okay. Uh, this is a Eugene Peterson's modern-day translation. Now, here's the thing about some of the newer versions. You have to be careful because it will dilute and water down the meaning of the text. But this particular passage, uh, it stays very true uh, to the context in the New King James and even the King James Version of the Bible. But it just gives us a different perspective and some different verbiage and different wording of the point that I want to make today and what I want to preach about. So in Psalm 57, you probably don't have a message translation, so you can follow along on the screen behind me. Here is what David writes beginning in the first verse. He says, be good to me, God, and now. I've run to you for dear life. Now watch this. I'm hiding out under your wings until the hurricane blows over. I call out to high God, the God who holds me together. He sends orders from heaven and saves me. He humiliates those who kick me around. God delivers generous love. He makes good on his word. That little line there, that phrase that says, I'm hiding out under your wings until the hurricane blows over. I want to use today for a title. I'm going to preach to you for a little bit this morning on this thought, the storms of life. David said, I'm hiding out under your wings until the hurricane blows over. I found a place in you, God, that I can take shelter until the storm passes by. Let's pray and then I'll let you be seated. Father, thank you for the word today. <clears throat> thank you for the truth of your word today. Thank you for the timing of your word today, God. And I believe that you're going to use this little message today to speak to someone, to strengthen someone. God, to set someone on a proper course and give them, God, a different perspective of where they are and what's happening in their life right now. Father, give us revelation knowledge of the word today. Help us to hear exactly what you want to say to us. As we gather in these altars in a few moments, I pray that the Holy Spirit will touch and transform people's lives. And I love you, and I thank you for it today. In Jesus' name, the church said amen. God bless you today. You can be seated. Pastor Tony, thank you this morning for your help as always. So many of us watched with great concern and care several days ago as Hurricane Matthew bared down on the Caribbean, the Bahamas, Haiti, 
the southeastern United States, Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, and North Carolina. Storm that was 200 miles wide. Top wind speeds were measured at 160 miles per hour. As late as this week, the death toll continues to, to rise, even in North Carolina, and total lives that have been lost as a result of this hurricane, 1,045 people. Millions evacuated. Massive flooding. A price tag at probably $70 billion dollars worth of damage they estimate when it's all said and done. As the governor of Florida stood at a podium and held a press conference and urged people and compelled people to get out and to leave as quick as they can, he said, and I quote, this storm will kill you. You know, hurricanes are not new to this country. Every year we have what they call a hurricane season. And there have been several major storms that have struck this country, several major hurricanes that have hit different places of America through the years. Long before they started naming hurricanes, 1900 in Galveston, Texas. It is still on record as the most deadliest hurricane or storm to ever hit this part of the country or this part of the world. Eight to 12,000 people were killed as a result of that hurricane. 1926, Miami, Florida, a hurricane hits and it results in a 15-foot surge of floodwaters. 1989, Hurricane Hugo. $13 billion worth of damages. 1992, Hurricane Andrew. 140 mile per hour winds and 100,000 homes destroyed. And who can forget Hurricane Katrina? 2005. Almost 2,000 people were killed as a result of that storm. And it became the first storm in history to ever have a price tag that would exceed $100 billion in damages. And the thing about natural storms like hurricanes is they usually come with some kind of advanced warning that they're on the way. I mean, my folks live in South Carolina at Cherry Grove Beach, just seven or eight miles from the ocean. And there were many days ahead of time that there were press conferences and warnings and caution that was given for people to take action, to be prepared, and to evacuate. I mean, there were days out that they were already talking about people needing to evacuate. And see, natural storms like this Give us time to prepare to evacuate and to plan and to board up homes and businesses. 
But the, the storms of life don't usually come with, with a warning. Oftentimes they come suddenly. There is an unexpected death and you find yourself in a storm. There is a miscarriage. You've bought the crib, you've painted the nursery, you've made plans, and the doctor tells you they can't find a heartbeat, and you find yourself in a storm. A pink slip is given to you at work, letting you know that you've been terminated with no severance pay, and you find yourself in a storm. A Dear John letter letting you know that they no longer love you anymore. They want nothing to do with you. They're filing for divorce. They're leaving and they're never coming back and you find yourself in a storm. You sit in a courtroom. You hear the gavel come down. You hear the judge declare the guilty verdict and you know that your son or daughter is facing jail time for the choices and the decisions that they've made and you find yourself in a storm. A diagnosis from a doctor that will send a shiver down your spine and you find yourself in a storm. I wish that I could stand here today and tell you that your life from this point on will be free from storms. I wish I could stand here today and tell you that you are exempt from ever having to go through a test or a trial or a struggle, but I can't stand here today and tell you that. If I stood here today and gave you this false sense of hope, that everything from this point on in your life was going to be just wonderful and peachy and perfect. It's going to be a tiptoe through the tulips and it's going to be easy until Jesus comes. I would do you a terrible disservice. And I don't come today to be a prophet of gloom and doom. But I do want to tell you the truth that if you live long enough, you are going to encounter some storms in your life. You can't run fast enough or far enough away or hide anywhere to get away from storms that will be a part of your life. I look across this congregation today and I look at faces and I know some of your stories. You've already weathered some storms in your life. David would write in Psalm 34 and 19 that many are the afflictions. He couldn't say some. He didn't even say a few. For the turpin, he said, many. I, I don't like that verse. I mean, couldn't he have said occasionally? But David said, many are the afflictions of the righteous. But God, I'm always glad there's a but God. But God delivereth them out of them all. Jesus would write in John 16 and 33 and tell us that in this world, you are going to have tribulations. But be of good cheer, he said, for I have overcome the world. David would write in Psalm 23 and 4 about walking through a valley of a shadow of death, but he would tell us, don't fear any evil because God is with you. 
Peter would pen these words in 1 Peter 4 and 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. You know what Peter is saying there? It is not abnormal. It's not strange to go through a trial or to go through a test. And then Paul would write to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and 9. He would say, we are hard-pressed on every side, yet we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. Always carrying about in our body the dying of the Lord Jesus. That when the life of Christ might be made magnified or magnified in our lives. Storms are going to come. Trials are a part of life. There will be days and there will be times and there will be seasons when your faith is stretched to its limit. The words of this text come from the Mouth of a man named David who finds himself in a very, very stormy time. I'll get to that in just a moment, but let me just tell you that the life of David started out pretty well. He finds himself in a field tending his father Jesse's sheep. It was there in that field as a teenage boy that he honed his skill as a player of the harp. It was there in that field that David honed his ability and his craft of singing and writing worship and songs of praise to God. I believe it was there in that field that he had a harp because you know, harps came in two basic sizes in the day. Some that were very big you would, you would have to stand behind to play, but some were small enough you could cradle them in your arm. I'm convinced, Aunt B, that David had a harp in that field. And it was in that field that he learned. He learned to turn his heart and his attention and his focus to God. And when he wasn't taking care of the sheep, I believe there may have been some downtime that he had. And he would take, he would take those hands out and he would begin to pluck the strings of that harp and some of the most beautiful melodious tones that you've ever heard would come from that harp and I believe it was in that field that David would pin things like this the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want he maketh me to lie down in green pastures he leadeth me beside the still waters he restores my soul it was there in that field I believe he would, pin, he would pin the Psalms like Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and come into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name for the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever there in that field David learned how to be a worshiper. He would be in that field minding his business. And a messenger, Pastor Tony, would come running out to him to say, David, there's this prophet in your house named Samuel. He said something about the present king Saul that God has rejected because of disobedience. And at some point, David, Israel's going to need a new king. And, and I was there, and, and all your brothers, the big brawny, tall, strong, 
wide-shouldered boys that are much older than you and appear to be more talented than you. They, they passed before Samuel hoping to be anointed as king, but, but he never anointed any of them, David. And, and, and right be, before Samuel packed up his stuff and left, David, uh, the prophet asked your dad if they had another son. And almost as an afterthought, David, your dad said, Oh, I almost forgot. I've got another boy out in the field tending sheep. But he's the run of the litter. He's the smallest of the bunch. And, and David Samuel looked at your dad and said, You better go get him because we're not going to sit down and eat this meal and finish this ceremony until I see him. And David, they, they sent me out here in a hurry to get you to come in. And David goes, I'm imagining, what are you, what, a king? What are you talking about? I don't know, David, just come on. And the Bible said that when David walked in the house that day, the Bible said he was ruddy. That means he was red-haired and freckled-faced. He was ruddy, the Bible said, with all of a beautiful countenance. And as soon as the prophet laid his eyes on that probably 13- or 14-year-old boy, Samuel heard the voice of God in his ear, and he said, Samuel, arise and anoint him, for this is the next king of Israel standing before you. Samuel never batted an eye, never said one thing, but the Bible said he took a horn of oil, and he poured it on the head of David as it dripped down his head and down that old shepherd's garment. The Bible said that from that day forward, the Spirit of God came upon David. You know where David went after that anointing ceremony? It wasn't time to go to the throne yet. It wasn't time for Saul to, to leave the throne yet. But the Bible tells us David went right back out into the field to take care of the sheep. But it was there in that field when he would go down to check on his brothers who, were, who had joined themselves to Saul, the president day king's army. I'll get back to that story in a moment. And the Bible tells us that there was this 10 foot tall giant out there that was blaspheming the God of Israel. And we know the story that David took, took he, he took offense a, a at that and he, he said, how can we let this, this giant stand here and defy the armies of the living God? That can't happen. We know that David takes a smooth stone into a slingshot. He faces that giant. He defeats that giant. All of a sudden, his popularity starts to rise. He's rising to notoriety now, and he becomes a faithful servant in Saul's court, bearing his armor. But all of a sudden, things begin to change as David begins to go out and fight battles for King Saul and do the work of the king. And the women would come in from battle. They would sing this song. Saul has slain his thousands, but David, his tens of thousand. That set off this jealous paranoid rage in the mind of King Saul. And for years he would hunt David down trying to kill him. And David is now a fugitive on the run, ducking in and out of caves, hiding in the stronghold in the wilderness, trying to spare his life from a tormented maniac by the name of Saul. And when these words in Psalm 57 come to us, that's exactly where David finds himself. Psalm 57, if you cross-reference, the details of that psalm are found in 1 Samuel chapter 22. And David, once again, is on the run for his life. He has had to duck into a cave because he knows that Saul is after him. He has become so desperate prior to going to that cave that, that he went to the enemy the camp of the enemy, the enemy army, the Philistines, trying to find refuge. The king of the Philistines was on to him, so David had to fake insanity. 
And he's drooling and spitting down his beard and he's scratching on the wall and acting like he's a madman because he knows now he's in trouble because he's in the camp of the enemy and they're going to turn on him. So he leaves there and he goes to a place called Adullam, which means the place of the squeeze. And the Bible tells us in 1 Samuel 22 that David and 400 men were together in that cave. And the Bible tells us that all of those who were in debt, all of those who were in distress, all of those who were discontent had joined themselves to David in that cave. And there's David. What a motley crew he has surrounding him. 400 depressed, indebted, distressed, discontented, messed up men, and they're all together in that cave. And David, one more time, is trying to salvage his life from the deranged king who was paranoid and tormented because an evil spirit had begun to oppress him. And when you look at Psalm 57... And you hear David say, I'm hiding out under your wings until the hurricane blows over. It makes sense that he would need somewhere to hide out because he feels like he's in the midst of a storm. He feels like he is in the middle of one of the greatest tests of his life. And he's saying, God, I've got to have somewhere to hide out until the hurricane blows over. Have you ever been at a place in your life when you have felt like there's a hurricane that is blowing all around you? Ever been to a place in your life that you have felt the, the winds of the storm? You have felt the rain pelt in your face. You have heard the thunder rolling. You've seen the lightning flash and you think, my God, I don't know if there's any way out. Has anybody ever lived through a storm in your life? And David says, that's where I'm at right here. But here's my solution, David says. I'm hiding out under your wings until the hurricane blows over because here's the truth. At some point, it is going to blow over. Whatever storm you might find yourself in this morning, I want to tell you it will not last forever. Whatever place you're in right now that is hard, it's a trial, it's a test, it's a struggle. It didn't come to stay. It came to pass. At some point, the storm will end. At some point, the rain will stop. At some point, the wind will die down. At some point, the hurricane will just relax. It'll be over. It'll be done. You'll stand up taller. You'll be stronger. You'll be better because of it. I'm telling you, there's a place you can go in the midst of the storm. You can hide out until the hurricane blows over. Oh, hallelujah. Let me give you just a few principles real fast. How do we handle, how do we handle the storms of life? Number one, if you're taking notes, you have to remember past victories. David was accustomed to storms, Pastor Tony. I mean, that guy had lived through some pretty difficult times, Brother Turpin. This is not the first time that his life had flashed, Brother Hanks, before his eyes. Because sometime back, I mentioned it a moment ago, he had stood in front of what theologians say was a 10-foot-tall giant named Goliath. 
Remember, David's three brothers had joined themselves to Saul's army to be his warriors and to fight with him. David's father, Jesse, had sent him down to check on those boys and to get a report of how it was going, what was happening, to bring it back to him. And the Bible said that David rides up that day. There's this great commotion that's going on. Because down in the valley stands a man named Goliath, 10 feet, 4 inches tall, they say. The Bible said he was the champion of the Philistines. He had never, ever, they say, because they called him a champion, had never, ever lost a battle. And he's trying to get the Israelite army, the arch rival of the Philistines, to send somebody out to fight him and to see if they can defeat him. And nobody is willing to go fight him. And can you blame them? I mean, they are hunkering down in fear as Goliath stands down there and that mighty roar that bellows out of him says, send somebody to fight me. And whoever wins this battle, if your guy beats me, the Philistines will become servants to you, but if I win, you become our servants. And nobody will step up. David rides up, teenage boy, and he hears the giant down there in the valley belching out and bellowing out blasphemies against the God of Israel. And he says, is there not a cause? Is somebody, anybody, going to step up and fight him? And David's older brother looks at him and says, what are you doing here? Watch the disdain that he has. You know why I believe he said this to him? Because he was jealous because he had saw David be anointed as king that day. Who have you left those few sheep with in the wilderness, David? You're just here to see what's going on. You're just here to be nosy. What are you doing here? David said, no, is there, is there not a cause? I'll go fight the giant. You know this Sunday school story. Somebody goes to Saul and says, we found somebody to fight Goliath. Saul, Saul said, bring him here to me. And in walks the red-haired, freckled-faced boy. Saul said, where's the guy that's going to fight him? Ooh, it's me, Saul. Saul looks at David. If you study the story out first Samuel 17, he says, David, you can't fight him. He said, you're, you're only a youth, and this guy is a man of war from his youth. David, he'll destroy you. Saul, no. Now listen, remembering past victories. So I want you to understand something here, that your servant is a keeper of his father's sheep. And when a bear and a lion would come into the flock to take a lamb... He said, I went out after it, and I struck it, and I delivered the lamb from its mouth. Here we go now. He's remembering past victories. And he said, Saul, and that same occasion when that bear and that lion rose up against me, he said, I grabbed it by its beard. I struck it, and I killed it. Now, you don't have to believe the Bible if you don't want to. And you can say, now, Pastor, that just has to be some kind of comparison here. That's not, not a literal translation. You can believe that if you want to. I don't have time to try to convince you. But if the Bible tells me that David caught a lion or a bear by its beard and struck it and killed it, I believe that David did exactly what the Word of God said. Now, watch here what David says to Saul. He said, Saul, I've killed both a lion and a bear. 
He said, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, seeing that he has defied the armies of Israel this day. And he said, moreover, Saul, the God who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the God who delivered me from the paw of the bear is the same God who will deliver me from this uncircumcised Philistine giant. You know what David was doing that day? David was looking back at every victory that God had brought him. And he was saying, Saul, I've seen God do it before, and I know that God can do it again. There is something about looking back that gives you the faith and gives you the confidence and gives you the ability to know that if God has been faithful once, God will be faithful again and God will take care of you. Ah, come on and praise the Lord today. <clears throat> Maybe that's what David had in mind when he wrote in Psalm 37. See, his ability to reflect it helped him to keep functioning in faith in the midst of the storm. Here's what he said in Psalm 37. Listen now. Verses 23, 24, and 25. He said, the steps of a good man are ordered by God. For he delights in his way. Though he fall, he didn't say he wouldn't fall, but though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down for the Lord will uphold him with his hand. Watch verse 25. David said, I have been young, and yet I'm old. But I have never seen the righteous forsaken. And I have never seen his seed begging for bread. Here's what David was saying when he wrote Psalm 37. I've been a lot of places, and I've seen a lot of things. I've had my fair share of storms. I've had my fair share of battles. But here's one thing that I can look back on and I am confident of. Not one time has God ever let me down. Not one time, Harold Stout, has God ever forsaken me. Not one time has God ever let me go hungry. My shoes didn't wear out. My feet didn't hurt. My shoulders didn't break down. God has been faithful, David was saying. So what do we do? How do we face the storm? Remember past victories, isn't that? Listen, the children of Israel, what they say? For 40 years, their shoes never wore out. Their garments never got holes in them. You know why? Because God was faithful. And it was looking back when the children of Israel could look behind them and see that God, who has done it before, can indeed do it again. Number two, here's how you handle the storm. You rest in God's presence. Wait a minute, Pastor. Hurricane, storm, winds, rest, they don't go together. Here's how you can rest in a storm. Because you know that God is in control of the storm. Here's how you can rest in the storm. You can rest in the storm because you know that God is present in the midst of the storm. My mind travels back to Mark chapter 4 when Jesus told his disciples to get into a boat. Let us, what did he say, cross over to the other side. And they get out in the middle of the sea and the Bible says that a great windstorm arose. And where's Jesus? He's in the back part of the ship. And guess what Jesus is doing? <clears throat> I love it. Jesus is taking a nap. You know why? Because physically, 
the human part of Jesus was exhausted. He'd been teaching and preaching all day long. Do you think that he knew they were going to go into that storm? I think he did. No, I know he did. Do you think that he had an idea of how bad the wind was going to be? I'm pretty sure he did. So they're in the middle of the storm, but guess who's right there with him, with them? Jesus. And there are times that it might feel like Jesus is sound asleep and has no idea what you're going through. Because here's what the disciples, they went back there, and how rude of them to wake him up. Here's what they said. Master, what an oxymoron. What a contradictory statement. They're filled with fear that they're going to die, but then they call him master out of the other side of their mouth. How do you reconcile that? If he's master, which means supreme being and Lord over all, do you notice the double-mindedness of the disciples? Master, don't you care we're going to die? We know you're supreme in charge of all, but don't you care we're going to die? How does that make sense? Double-mindedness. Master, we're going to die. Supreme being, Lord of all, authority over everything, we're going to die. Listen, he can't be master if you don't trust him. He can't be master and he can't be in charge of your life if you can't learn to surrender everything to him. Don't you care we're going to perish? And the Bible says that Jesus just stood up, stretched out his hands, he rebuked the winds and the waves, and here's what he said, peace, for the Kenny Hancock, be still. And at that moment, somebody, somebody said this, that the winds just kind of died down, and the waves licked his hand like Rover the dog, and said that you're in complete control, in charge of everything. Pastor, how, how do we rest in his presence, in the midst of the storm. Listen, here's how you do that, because you have to understand that what's over your head is under his feet. It's seen in Matthew chapter 14. The disciples are again in the boat, but this time he's not with them. And the Bible says they're in the middle of the sea. The boat was being tossed to and fro by the waves because the wind was contrary. And the Bible says in the fourth watch of the night... Between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., the darkest time of the night, they say, Jesus came walking on the sea. If the Bible says Jesus walked on the water, guess what I have to believe? I got to believe he walked on the water. And he came walking on the sea, and here we go. They cried out in fear and said, my God, it's a ghost. Jesus said, it is I. Do not be afraid. But even then, Peter wasn't convinced. Watch his doubt. Lord, if it really is you, Peter, he just said it was him. He just said it is I. Do not be afraid. Lord, if it's really you, then bid me come. I can hear, I can hear almost the exasperation of Jesus, maybe over the winds and the waves as he sighs. <sighs> Probably thinking, I just told him 
it was me. And now he says, if it's really you, I imagine that Jesus probably stayed a little bit frustrated with those 12 guys because they never seemed to get it. You know, like a father or mother has to repeat themselves over and over and over again, and they still don't get I know none of your kids. All of you that have raised your kids, your kids weren't like that, right? They listened the first time, right? They always had their clothes ready on Saturday night before Sunday morning because you've been telling them that for years. Always. Always like they're supposed to. And then at 9 o'clock on Sunday morning, there's a clothing crisis. And you're supposed to have already been walked out the door and on the road because you're going to be late for Sunday school. One of them takes all because you didn't listen and get your clothes out the night before. I didn't listen. Yeah, that happened at my house. Happens at my house pretty regularly on Sunday mornings. We had a good little lecture down the road. I had about 20, 25 minutes to lecture on the way down the road this morning. And said, so, now next week, here's the deal. If they're not ready, they're not out, I'm going to have me some electronic devices plugged up in my room. We're going to have a good time for several days. <sighs> Jesus walks on the water, and here's what he teaches them. What's over your head is under his feet. David knew a thing or two about the presence of God, didn't he? Here's what he said in Psalm 1611. You will show me the path of life. In your presence, there is what? Fullness of joy. What did he say in Psalm 23 and 4? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou, Brother Jerry Beckner, for thou art with me, he said. What did David say in Psalm 18, verses 1, 2, and 3? I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my strength in whom I will trust. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and so shall I be saved from mine enemies. What did he say in Psalm 27 and 5? For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. I'm telling you that when you get into the presence of God, there is nothing that can touch you. There is nothing that can harm you. And I don't care what you're facing today. You can rest knowing that the God of all gods is with you and he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He'll go with you always even to the end of the world. That's the kind of God we're serving today. <clears throat> Last point, and I'm going to close. Number three, here's how you handle the storms. You remember past victories. You rest in his presence, and you rely on his power. Listen, every storm that you'll face in life, it is bigger than you. It's bigger than you. But here's the truth. It may be bigger than you, but it's not bigger than God. Sometimes you have to look at the size of your storm and not talk to it about how big it is, but you got to talk to that storm about the size of your God. Listen, there's sometimes, I'm telling you, in the midst of a storm and a struggle and a trial, you've got to get away all by yourself. 
And you've got to get bold, and you've got to get strong, you've got to get courageous, and you've got to look the storm and the devil and all of hell in their face and say, listen to me. Yeah, you may be bigger than me, and you may be stronger than me, but let me tell you about my God. You are not bigger than the God that I serve. Don't magnify the storm. Come on, Pastor Tony, help me lay in this place. Don't, don't magnify the storm. Magnify your God. And it's all about perspective. Right? Brother Gene Turpin, you wear glasses. You take those off, things don't look as clear, do they? Listen, I wear contacts. I wear contacts. If I take these contacts out, I can't see a thing far away. I just, I just mask the fact that my body is aging. I'm getting older. I've been wearing contacts a long time. But I, I, if I take these contacts out, I don't see very well. It's, it's, it's impossible. When I, when I put those contacts in, I mean, it opens, up a, it opens up a whole new world to me. I remember when I first realized I had trouble seeing. I was driving. I was, I don't know, 16, 17. It's bad enough that you're a teenage driver. But then you can't see the road signs in the dark far away. And I told my mother, I think I've got a problem. I can't see things far away. So she took me to the doctor. Sure enough, I'm nearsighted. I can't see things far away. See you know what the doctor did, to, did for me? Gave me a pair of glasses. And as I got a little bit older, I didn't like the glasses. So I wanted some contacts. And I'm telling you, listen, when I got that first pair of glasses, I mean, I was in a whole new world. I could see things at nighttime and even in the daytime I could never see before. I didn't have to squint. I didn't have to look hard. Listen, my perspective changed. I wonder if that's what David had in mind in Psalm 34 and 3 when he said, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. You know, if you take a magnifying glass out, what does it do? Can I just teach a little bit this morning? What does it magnify? What is, it makes objects what? He said, oh, magnify the Lord with me. You know, David was saying, I need some folks to help me get a bigger perspective and a bigger picture of who God really is. Oh, hallelujah. Do you think that maybe in the natural, David was struggling with his perspective of God? All that he had been through and all that he had endured and all that he was walking through, his natural eye thought, my God, this is so much bigger than me, but magnify the Lord with me. Let's look up at God and say, God, listen, you might look small to my natural eye, but when I look at you in the spirit, there is nobody as big as you, as bad as you, or as strong as you. Oh, oh magnify the Lord with me. Magnify the storm. Don't tell the storm how big it is. Tell the storm how big my God is. I'm talking about a God in Psalm 24 and 1 who said the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. I'm talking about a God in Isaiah 66 and 1. He said heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. <laughs> oh God, I could preach right there at time. You know what that means? God's over it all. God's stronger than it all. God's bigger than it all. That means if heaven is his throne, that means that God is seated. And God has his foot on top of this world. 
That means that God has the authority. God is bigger than the storm. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my foot. So I'm talking about a God who slung stars into space, carved out canyons, formed man from the dust of the earth with just one simple command. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the waters. And God said, Three words, let there be. Boom! I don't care what public teachers say there was. Listen, the Big Bang Theory is a bunch of hogwash. Evolution's a bunch of hogwash. There were, yeah, there was an explosion, all right. It was the explosion of the voice of the Creator speaking, and the whole world started shaking. God said, Let there be, and there was light, there was stars, there was a moon, there was a galaxy, there was a Milky Way, there was trees, there was oceans. God said, and when God speaks, something happens. Well, I feel God touching me right here today. You can believe you came from an ape if you want to. I'm telling you where I came from, Sean Lawson. I came from the very dust of the earth, and God breathed into me the breath of life. God started speaking, and stuff started happening. I'm telling you, God spoke in Mark chapter 4 and said, peace be still. I'm telling you, one word from God will change your life. One word from God will calm the storm. One word from God will heal your body. One word from God will calm your troubled mind. One word from God will restore your marriage. One word from God will break every chain. When God starts speaking, something will start happening. Stand on your feet all over this place, would you please?